so uh oh you're getting a little johnny wet there i, I see that's a... uh, yeah yeah i got some some johnny wet juice uh officially licensed <laughs> <laughs> you got that off-brand johnny wet yeah i've got i've got the the g johnny ah, okay okay well let's get wet then yeah, time to get wet um yeah. Speaking of getting wet, I uh, I watched the uh, Emmys the other night. Um, oh, and uh, welcome to the one thirty fourth edition of the Twin Geek Cast. I'm here with Pavlos. There's uh, no Dave Hello. this week. Where did you leave him? Uh, in Portland. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, okay. okay. He never left the theater after playtime. <laughs> Oh, no. He clung to his seat like he couldn't. You couldn't get him off. <laughs> when we left the theater, he was like examining the theater, like all of it was a facade, like not the facade of the theater. I think he just stayed there and he's uh, inspecting oh. the theater. And uh, I, see, I see. Left him in the 1930s, uh, 20s, whenever that was built. So. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I hope he makes it back. Well, I don't know if it's better if he should stay there in the 20s or in those 20s or come. To the to our twenties. I don't know which twenties uh, are better anymore. I I think there was a debate, but uh, I mean he's white, so you know it's really a toss up. Uh, like I think he'd be fine in the in the nineteen twenties as well. He, what are your yeah. top ten twenties? Um... <laughs> well, I, I I am partial to the eighteen twenties. You know, yeah. with literature. Yeah, me that, too. From that time. Um, otherwise, you know, I I really think the. 1320s were a special decade. Um, you know, don't ask me why, but yeah. I think there were. Yeah, well, maybe like 1920s. Yeah, give it a, a third place there, bronze medal. Yeah, 1920s. You're looking at like a a spot of the Spanish flu, so you don't you don't want to go there. Um, right. Yeah, it's all the uh, uh, flu town. But you know, 20s. but ja the jazz, you know, flu jazz. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take the jazz. I feel like there's less jazz now, and that that I doesn't counterbalance. Jazz. Right, right. Yeah, I think the jazz cured you from the flu. Really, this is not true. But you know, we're not we're not medical professionals here, so we can just say stuff, right? Yeah, we're. I mean, it's not quite like the Roaring Twenties now. I like that. Like a old eras seem to have like a, a fixed mm -hmm. identities because there's so little else going on. Yeah. Like the the culture could roaring. be so monolithic because it wasn't so globalist. It was so like focused and yeah. insular, uh, for better and worse. Yeah. Well, I think I think for worse ultimately. Think, the, like, yeah. You know, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> when you when you really uh, sum it up, but uh, I also think you know less lines now. Like we, I think we probably have less lines now, so can't really have a roaring uh, roaring decade anymore because yeah. of it. Um, no. Uh, I know what we have now. Less Maybe flappers that. too. Um, yes, we got the twerkers now. Yeah, uh, the, are, I don't know if I'd uh, cool. give up the twerkers to get back the flappers. Honestly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we're the uh, the twerking generation. I think that might be what we go down in, uh, like the history books. Mm -hmm. uh, dirty, yeah, the, dirty the twerking twenties would be good. <laughs> the twerking dandies or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the twerking, twerking 20s, the Emmys um, were uh, had some yeah. twerking going on when they... Uh, really? A little bit. A little bit of twerk in that uh, opening bit. song. They did a they did a Bismarck Key uh, introduction, mm. which... Uh, mm -hmm. 
<laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. Cedric the Entertainer was the host. It felt like it was a, a particular thing, like going back to an old way of doing an award show with hosts and a uh, full room, like under a tent. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, kind of twisting his song to be like, TV, you're all that I need. Uh, you know, he's just a friend. I think that's a little gross and a little strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bismarcky mm-hmm. just died. Maybe don't change his song yet, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I love Bismarcky, so I was also a little teary-eyed just seeing everyone celebrating him. That yeah. is nice. So, uh, yeah. double-edged sword there. Um, but sure, uh, you kind of do want that uh, to see that you know you like, even though you have a personal relationship to someone, and maybe that shows like you know sort of rings maybe a little hollow. You still at the same time you like to see someone being appreciated like by many people, right? That you also <laughs> appreciate it. I mean. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to get a lot of that this week, especially. But I think yeah. just, well, I think we're going to look at some auteurs this week, uh, at least three or four auteur directors, and uh, certainly a, a comedian who's well-respected and singular in his craft. Um, but I, yeah, I think I think recognizing someone like Biz to open a show is a good statement. And um, it kind of belies the lack of uh, other diversity that was really down the card at the Emmys. Um Quick question. Yeah. Uh, what, what kind of awards are the Emmys again? <laughs> uh, what is, is it for TV? I don't yeah, really know. Um, I have to be honest. <laughs> for for people called uh, Emerald uh, Emmy. Ah, Emily's, okay. Emeralds, um, Amelia's, mm-hmm. uh, especially mm-hmm. recognizing their contribution. Yeah, it's for the television mm-hmm. industry. Yeah. yeah. It's a weird thing because it's also an award where there's like an award for the Oscars at the Emmys, right? Like there's a there's an what award. Well, there's an award for like the biggest production that was like on TV as like an event. So oh. the Oscars are always like recognized and nominated at the Emmys. And so they can't like meta award combine, but <laughs> at the same time, it's on CBS. So um, I don't know where people are watching their television now. I suspect none of it is on CBS based on what's nominated. Uh, Netflix probably has the largest <laughs> voting body of all the uh, contenders. So it's no, it's no longer like Game of Thrones every year because Netflix now has a larger voting body than HBO or anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so Netflix came away with most of the awards, so the crown meant that very few black people got to win awards. Uh, and the, oh, other, yeah. the other winners being like Ted Lasso, obviously, for Apple. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, not much. There were like three shows that really walked away with something. And, uh, I don't I, even know what's hot. Yeah. Uh, is that very like? Is that Underground Railroad? Did that get any play? It got some nominations. I I, I don't okay. remember seeing it get anything on stage, but uh, okay. I would have given it more play myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I I may destroy you is probably the one black win that was uh, bacon had a really really good speech about it. Uh, but you'd like to see more of that, especially the Oscars have done a lot to work on that problem and uh, uh, mm. create more diversity in their branches. Maybe the Emmys. Might need more diversity. It looked pretty white in there, but uh, we'll see what they keep mm-hmm. doing. Well, maybe if you uh, change your name to, you know, Emmanuel <laughs> Kemp, then you could also <laughs> get involved there and uh, and make it and make a difference. There was uh, there were a few moments where uh, Norm Macdonald came up, so uh, mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. uh, nice for the Emmys, like uh, in the Saturday Night Live when yeah, um, yeah, yeah so, where yeah. Michaels was saying, yeah, he was the best, one of the best we ever had all that um and uh john oliver won for the best variety show and uh, i was hoping conan would win because after 30 years on tv his show went off air this year 
and Norm right. just died. So, I mean, I, that would have been like the great confluence of that's the speech everyone wanted. But uh, uh, yeah. Conan got a few good, good moments in the show. The, uh, the president of the um, television academy got on stage. Conan stood up, gave him a big salute, and just stood in that pose for about two minutes while he gave his whole speech. Uh, very awkward and cringy, but uh, I think Conan could get away with that. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, we'll, I guess we'll return to him um, <laughs> yeah. as well. Uh, as, yeah, I'm sorry. As far as uh, television goes, I think that's all our coverage for the rest of the year. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I really can't help with that. Uh, like the one television thing we're going to talk about is, is uh, I, I watched as movie. Yeah. As well. But yeah, as me a movie as well. Version. <laughs> I uh, yeah. I don't watch much television. I think David even watches much more TV than me. So I, I'm not really yeah. the TV guy. I'll never be the TV guy for this. I, I never want to pretend that I even am engaged mm-hmm. with this content. I haven't seen The Crown. I'm not caught up with Ted Lasso. <laughs> I don't think I saw any shows that won. I've watched Underground Railroad this year, and uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll have a few more at the end of the year, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, I, uh, I just, at some point, I just lost the, I, I don't really know how to watch anymore. I seem to not know anymore <laughs> because uh, I, I just, you know, I started watching and then I, like, I just, I'm missing that continuity. Like, I can't do that anymore. Like, every yeah. time I was like, oh, I could watch, like, a couple episodes of this, continue in this one season out of I don't know how many, I could also just watch a movie or two in that same <laughs> yeah. time. Like, uh, it's uh, it's really tough to me for me to, like, um, justify that, uh, even though, obviously, it's very different things, uh, very different formats. Yeah. Uh, it's gotten tough for me. I don't know if I will ever be able to uh, get back to that but yeah the queen's gambit was the one i forgot that's the other one that won some awards mm. so okay. yeah just those three shows not... i don't care mm. i'm glad i'm not uh, asked about that anymore because obviously you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a you know I'm a, I'm a chess player i have a chess player i've been playing for 20 years now and uh so when that came out you know to- a lot of people ask me if i've seen it when i think about it and so on <laughs> <laughs> well, I brought you on the show to give me your uh, take on the Queen's Gambit and whether it uh, follows uh, chess. Mm. Um. Yeah. Uh, well, it, uh, it it definitely uh, has chess in it. I can confirm that. Uh, seen it. Uh, I know it's pretty accurate. Obviously, still some still some stuff that is uh, sort of played up for the drama. You know, not really accurate to how you like the etiquette of playing chess, like mm. the normal way of playing chess and, and so on, the, the practice. But uh, obviously, that and consultant and like all the matches are like taken from actual historical games, even you know, <laughs> stuff that pl- took matches that were played after, like historically speaking, after the time that the show takes place in. <laughs> it's just you know, it's kind of a mishmash of like different famous games that are just uh. That you see in that show so i only know that i watched some videos on the accuracy of the chess content in, in that show but and so i kind of also know what happens <laughs> <but I> never, <laughs> never watched it it sounds pretty I've, i know people who watch it i have also a friend who watched it and what he said was like that it's sort of uh very timid like it sort yeah. of touches on different issues but ultimately it's timid too timid to like address any one of them like properly um uh, like br- historical issues, addiction problems, etc. Yeah, exactly. I'm coming from it from like the side of addiction recovery, and you know my mm-hmm. specialization in that 
field. And um, uh, they even gave like a speech at the Emmys about how she's like mm-hmm. addicted to chess and uh, uh, drugs and wallpaper. I'm like, oh, fuck off. Like, uh, you, mm-hmm. you know, addiction is used so broadly and it's such a cliche that it rarely even gets into the meat of the issue or, or how that actually mm-hmm. feels or uh, the whether um, a lot of shows just forget to show that addiction requires consequence and then not facing it and returning to the drug. Uh, her story is kind of like she gets addicted. That's what makes her good at chess. And she's so fucking good now. And then uh, yeah. later she's alienated from people. And, you know, um, I don't like that kind yeah. of shit about it's addiction. More that, it's more that top, that top us of like genius, like a genius. Uh, so, you know, that alienation and that obsession uh, and, you know, sort of a pause, positive positive version of of that uh, obsession yeah um well yeah i mean i i've i i know plenty about chess addiction like playing yeah. online playing chess online can be highly addictive like i've played you know i've had countless sessions where i was like uh played until six in the morning just just kept playing bullet chess bullet chess is like one minute so it's mm-hmm. super fast uh and just kept playing, you know, writing down. Oh, I gotta back back, climb back up to what I oh, have. Oh yeah. My, and then push a bit more. Then you drop back down. It's like, oh, I just need to get it back up. And you drop further down. And at some point, if you play long enough, you get back up. It's like a crazy thing. And like I, my my consequence was that I don't ever have like a an active account in chess sites. I always delete it. Like I have sort of a phase, and then once I. Uh, once I go too far, like once I have a session that like goes all night and everything, I'm like, okay, deleting this account. And then it takes a few months until I make like a new one. And I just play like <laughs> anonymously, anonymously, like without a set fixed rating, just because like that is, it is so addictive. And I'm totally yeah. um, like, I can easily fall like, like, you know, I'm an easy target for that with, with online chess. So that's why it sort of took that step to not have like a, a, an account, but like, I would not, I would not like I say it's addictive, but I would never call it like a real addiction, you know, like a, yeah. like a it's not a problem. It's like it's right. it's a bad idea, it's a bad habit. Like it's you know, I'm not it's not I wouldn't habit's it. a good word, I think. Yeah, it's not a bad it's not like a proper like bad addiction or anything. <laughs> so Yeah, I guess it's just like size of addiction, right? It doesn't have like drastic consequences ultimately. Yeah. yeah. Um but yeah, this, uh, anyway. this is the start of award season, so that'll take us into uh, getting screeners mm-hmm. for the next four months, and that's all I'll mm-hmm. be able to think about. Um, that'll be nice and terrible, and uh, and I'll have a lot more content because of that, so that'll be fun, oh, too. Worthless, worthless shit. <laughs> and uh, I, the year started for me at around Sundance, where I saw a movie that you saw today. Um, so we've both seen this uh, Sono film. Uh-huh. That's right, Prisoners of the Ghost Land. It's called uh, the. I think it's still the latest uh, Sona film. I no. Didn't look it up. Oh, <laughs> no about, okay. Okay. Is it that or the Red Post on Escher Street? I don't know which is recent or more recent now. I thought Red Post was before. Maybe, okay. but maybe you're maybe you're right. I don't know. He's you know he had this heart attack a couple years back, but he's not back to like his um, previous level of productivity. Which is good, probably because it induced that heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> maybe so, don't uh, Sona. Yeah, yeah, maybe don't repeat that. But um, you know, he's he's back to making stuff, and like I don't think you can say that with Ghostland. Um, I think we both agree, right? That's not a wholly successful movie, um, but uh, <laughs> it's certainly a you know a worthwhile, well, certainly certainly a worthwhile effort in a in a in a like he didn't 
return to any kind of conventional filmmaking or anything like he continues to do his thing even though for filmmaking wise i found it to be pretty different from other films of his i mean he has made so many but like for example there's a the emphasis on dialogue is much reduced and you have uh, a much more sort of atmospheric like almost like this ethereal like dream atmosphere going on um it takes place in this cultural mishmash of a sort of western eastern uh, society and this apocalyptic wasteland which is sort of like a gulag that people are stuck in um and uh you've got Nick cage uh playing sort of this 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 ba uh, like bank robber convicted bank robber who's supposed to go in there and rescue the daughter of the of the sort of i mean pimp ultimately the <laughs> governor slash pimp that keeps the city sort of under his grip that's kind of the old thing there was a thing that I believe they were going to shoot in America or something, and then mm -hmm. uh, Sono had the heart attack, and Cage was uh, um, so into the idea of working with him and uh, so determined that they moved the whole production to Japan for Sono, and uh, they did it there. Uh, and I think that works toward its aesthetic. And uh, we don't get that many post-apocalyptic, <laughs> I cannot talk about <laughs> um, uh, films set uh, between like that uh, mishmash of cultures of Japan and America from Japan, so that's cool. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I I like that it was sort of it's a very stagey film that has more to do with uh, theater than anything else. Like uh, and and uh, like there's a big emphasis on choreography and like sort of the almost like the Greek um, the Greek chorus. Uh, of like you always have like these these uh, groups of like singers or choreographed sort of group move, groups that move sort of uh, in a choreographed manner and a lot of like slow motion and stuff that highlights those movements and very, again very little dialogue and this continuous sort of sound this continuous sort of timber um, that sort of sets the the, the atmosphere um, on on like an oral level um, and it has yeah much to do with like performance um art and and theater this this film in particular but then it also has that other mode of like violence and like quick sort of um violent action uh sudden like abrupt uh, uh action um, yeah, is that like sci-fi absurdism absurdism of like the mad maxian things but also like he has like his uh testicles are equipped with like explosives <laughs> um yeah yeah, a lot of Sonian yeah. ideas too. He loses one of them. Uh, yes. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Which he then also, you know, in a speech, he he's, he gives that, you know, he expresses that uh, the anguish over the last uh, testicle. <laughs> so there's also some undeniable goofiness. Obviously. Yeah, when there is dialogue, it matters, is what you're saying. It's it's very goofy. Yeah, it is. Uh, the the governor guy is you know plays it like is deliberately hammed up as a character, um, like a a pastiche cliche like walking cliche of like a cowboy. Oh uh, yeah. He calls like his right hand. You know he says like Yazujiro, like you know give it like a big a thick American accent, pronouncing all the Japanese uh, and stuff. Um, I guess I could have cast you as well uh, for that role. Um, mm -hmm on the yeah pronounce pronounce those names yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i can hardly uh, pronounce american words some of the time so. 
<laughs> but, yeah, it, like, I, I didn't find it totally successful. It's a bit too like it's it's a bit um sort of it's it's thin like uh, sort of, yeah. it's a bit stretched. The material is stretched over too long a runtime. It's not that long of a film, but it's just not much there, and it's stretched a little thin. But uh, I did enjoy the production design, um, the state like the staging, the staging, and some some of the like like uh, camera work uh, was like you know this is not a for me not a, not a successful film, but at least one that and, and it wasn't written by Sono, which is also pretty um, important to note. Um, at least one that doesn't like you know, it's not like a shot like like you know Sono could have come back and be like unrecognizably like like taken a. Uh, a massive uh, uh, drop in quality or anything with his work. Yeah. I wouldn't say that it's. I wouldn't say it's that. It's you know, interesting, interesting film, but not wholly successful. But you know, let's see the next one. Um, still, still an interesting, interesting piece. Um, I would say. Absolutely, um, we're going to have several, um, maybe later mm -hmm. stage careers of filmmakers today. Uh, mm -hmm. Looking at uh, Paul Schrader next with the card counter. Yeah, tell us about that. Which, coming off first reform, he's still interested in the same spaces and places and uh, techniques, the Bersonian uh, angle of a uh, diaristic man sitting at a table and writing out his story, uh, kind of like the Diary of a, a Country Priest. Is that the name of that? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sort of like that film, it's taken at a spiritual level, uh, his association with his old reign of torture at a an Iraq facility and how he uh, implemented that torture on other people and now he's kind of tortured in his own mind and he uses these same spaces as though they're like the same barracks of the, the torture chambers they look like kill rooms um, mm -hmm. the hotels and long hallways and uh, casino halls that look like dead spaces usually in movies they look like they're so inviting but here they look like as soul uh destroying as they probably are like they they feel so devoid of humanity and uh color and um any obvious intrigue but um then like the card tables of course are bright and they're like felt and they show the you know his only attraction left is uh counting cards which he learned in prison he was put in prison for um the torture and improper treatment of the uh, people he was guarding although his mm -hmm. uh his the guy above him was actually in charge of all that, who's uh, played by William Defoe. And uh, it's about getting back to him and how uh, his reign of terror over there uh, affected this uh, boy's father and ended up, uh, the father killed himself. It's a little hard to recap, but um, spiritually, I think it's in line with Schrader's other work. And I think he's taking a, a serious look at things and doing things in a more formal manner than uh many directors today i still really appreciate him um the film has about 30 producers on it which asks a big question to me that what does it take anymore to actually get to make something outside of a corporate interest um i think it might take martin scorsese and 29 other producers to actually make a film with your own vision yeah it's crazy that someone like you know schrader has that problem like and it's right. not the only one of course uh like that's that's really yeah just absurd to hear that uh but uh, it's interesting like it's would you say this is more radical even than post reformed <laughs> or like more following on that track 
I don't think it's more radical. I think it's a little spurious too. I think it, uh, well, I went with my friend Vaughn who writes for the site now. Um, I don't think he got so much out of it. I think it's very possible to watch this and there are a lot of gaps and connections you have to make yourself. I think most of the connections exist in the spaces and places of his film and how he frames things as his idols did, um, how he shoots things like Ozu did or how Brisson did. Uh, and if you look at it through those angles, and I mean, the literal ending, uh, I'm going to spoil it all, I guess, but the literal ending is the same as Pickpocket. So you could you could like lift those things. Like it's very much Diary of a Country Priest, then Pickpocket, and then Ozu influences and uh, still his techniques uh, reflect the, uh, the people he cares influences? about. The way he shoots low and some of his angles and how he shoots like okay. always and his spaces. Okay. Um, but yeah. Um. Okay, I mean, that does sound a bit more radical in the sense that it's if it's more elliptical than uh, First Reformed, because First Reformed, I thought, was a great film. Uh, mm -hmm. um, really uh, a, a strong, like, like sort of making, uh, showing like how sort of this, this existential crisis by, caused by the ecological uh, change that we're experiencing, um, sort of really becomes a private one like even though it's not affecting you know even though there's no direct like effect for the moment there is uh and, and like in the mean like meanwhile there is of course uh, also the direct effect, yeah still sort of this big problem sort of how, how it sort of translates into this into the private sphere and how that can cause um like it's a film that 10 years before would have seemed a little bit maybe ridiculous like a little bit like of an, of an, of an overreaction or something yeah but the the top but when it was made when it was when it came out i think was like yeah no this is not this is very real now and um obviously i also like superbly shot um really like um sort of a, like you said like a very formal uh almost like almost like classically trained uh uh sort of approach um uh, that I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to this one. I mean, obviously there's a double interest there for me because of hotels. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think you'll yeah. love these hotels. They There sure are some hotels. Yeah, hotels and film. Very, very interesting subject for me. Um, so yeah, no, I'm curious curious to see see that one. Um, it, was, uh, and, mm -hmm. it was with my wife at a recovery convention in Quebec. Well, I was in Montreal and we were looking through these cathedrals all day and doing like tours of all the various spaces of cathedrals. And uh, we went to about six or seven of them. And at the end of the day, we went to First Reformed at a, a Montreal theater. And uh, that that was really like the perfect topping for me of, of that whole day. And I think I'll always remember mm -hmm. that as one of my more significant spiritual mm -hmm. experiences, spaces and, and films. So I think about Schrader that way now. Yeah. That's oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, you know, he's a character. Let's say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, we should have more. Should have more characters. Uh, <laughs> uh, he yeah. makes Facebook posts, um, and he directs films. So. I yeah, I see. I see those screenshots, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> every time I don't know how to react to them, but I'm glad they can. Uh, I'm glad they exist. I'll yeah. shake my head a little, but you know. <laughs> yeah, we're we're shaking our heads with approval in some ways. <laughs> yeah that's a good way to describe it but uh you know the most important thing here is is his films and it's i'm glad that he didn't 
you know that he's still making interesting uh, works. Maybe he's mo most interesting. I don't know. Like uh, depending mm. on who you ask, I guess uh, in his career. Um, do you wanna maybe uh, switch? Because uh, since we're talking about like late stage, late stage career films, do you wanna yeah. maybe do Eastwood? Uh, yeah, now? we could do Is Eastwood now. Uh, Eastwood will yeah. be quick anyway. I don't have too many thoughts on Cry Macho, except mm -hmm. in the category of the late era Eastwood, which I'm very interested in. I'm very interested in late era directors' careers and what they do. Um, mm -hmm. Essentially, after they've had their big run of success, it's more interesting to me than the heat of the success. Um, mm -hmm. Really, how they yeah. fade away or come back is interesting. And uh, Eastwood's mm -hmm. one that has come back four or five times. Like There are like four or five waves of Eastwood comebacks and revitalization. And I, uh, I think I'm particularly interested in this uh, almost Paul Greengrassian like, uh, late era of Eastwood where it's uh, very technical one-shots and then they go to lunch and uh, it doesn't seem like they're uh, paying much mind to it. He knows what he wants and he gets it. Um, and I think there's something respectable about that. I mean, I think Soderbergh's doing that at a higher level right now and, and caring a little bit more about the, the framing and what's actually going on in the, in the picture. But Eastwood's really just uh, working because he always has like a, his films have become oh, about that Allen. endless motor. Yeah. Uh, like like Woody Allen, you think he makes things and, and he doesn't even know if he likes them anymore. He, he just does it almost out of, uh, yeah. Oh, what yeah. would you say? Out of habit, again, yeah. like uh, the routine, like it's like out of inertia almost, like he can't, yeah. he's, can't stop his body from <laughs> continuing. And the later these pictures get, the longer it's just like Eastwood like traveling in a car and I'm really enjoying this metaphor. Mm -hmm. He's a He's a real stranger to metaphors, actually. But um, when you look at like what, you know, other than like Unforgiven, I think you could mine that for more themes. I don't think his new films have a lot of themes. Um, I think they're a little theme light and a little bit. Um, I mean, they're not even expository. They're just they're just very simple uh, vehicles in the standard Hollywood tradition that used to be made. Like uh, you could look at like a Hoxian picture, not like a not a premier Hoxian movie, but uh, one of his, you know, secondary or B pictures. And Eastwood's kind of working in that mode, just making what he wants, short production times. Let's get him out before he's gone. Listen, I mean, uh, his films, uh, I think, I mean, this late stage, like especially with these directors that are still so prolific uh, in their in the in the high age uh it's it's really like for example you know someone who still also like like he makes the films i still watch the alan films out of habit mm -hmm. um and that's kind of a you know like a desert like there's really uh <laughs> not much there anymore like uh it's really one one just uh poor uh product after another for me i mean i think the last one that was like sort of crossed into like a a level that i call decent I think, and not more than decent, but decent was, I think, Cafe Society. Um, but uh, I would have to lo look at a list because obviously with so many films, you're also forgetting about stuff uh, sometimes. But uh, um, yeah. Eastwood, I think, is a little bit more, like managed to maintain a little bit more of a level of like complexity, let's say. Complexity with regards he's to- He's still like, interested in the things. work, right? Like he's still, he's still trying, I'd say. Right, he's probably trying a bit more and I mean complexity because some of his films still get, are garnering a positive and or ambivalent response, and that's you know that's something. Like uh, for example, well, I think for example, The Mule. I was surprised by how me too. Like, that was pretty good. That's a pretty good film. Uh, then I haven't seen. I've seen Richard other, Jewel. Like, but 
I haven't seen Richard Jewell, right? And that is like very divisive, a very divisive film. Yeah. Uh, uh, like the treatment of the women journalists and kind of what it makes up. And then its premise of like truth in the media is a little shaky. But I think ultimately mm-hmm. everything else it says is really important. Like Richard Jewell is a good movie. Like it's, it's a good, solid mm-hmm. film. Well made. And then you have stuff like, I mean, I personally think it's completely, completely <laughs> shit, shit picture, like the pilot film. What's it called? Oh, Sully. Yeah. Yeah. Like, for example, I, I, I personally, I thought it was completely, <laughs> that was like Alan, the Alan movie. It's just, yeah, mundanity. So, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's really poor. Yeah. But you have that spectrum, you know, and as long as there is that, I mean, spectrum implies that you have films on all sort of ends mm-hmm. of the film, maybe not on the sort of low, uh, low end. On the positive yeah. extreme. Yeah, maybe not on the highest, highest end either, you know. Yeah. But um, I don't think you've said yet, like, how you feel, so how you felt about Crime Match, or, like, what do you, like, you just you didn't think it was that strong, right? You thought about it was a bit weak, as I, if I remember your review correctly. On the- I, I feel like we're going over some of the same stuff as The Mule, but not uh, quite as well produced. He's done several of these films where it's, like, old uh, Guardian Clint, who's passing on the torch to a younger generation. Yeah. In this one, yeah. it's about how to become macho, which I don't, I don't know. Uh, and the there's a rooster who's cockfighting. It's called macho, so they bring that with them. Uh, some of the thing is about like Clint Eastwood getting back on the horse. So it has like a shot of him sitting on a horse. Great, he could sit up on a horse, but then it's like obviously body doubles. I'm like, is that the real hook here? Like, is it really that like he had a body double do it? And it's about virility and uh, still having like a internal strength and passing that on to young men which uh, i don't know it's it's a little shakier than than the mule which i think is a a really good movie i've had a a man and his family that's well developed and and has like a actual narrative that that i'm hooked on to but yeah he has to deliver that's this boy to mexico yeah 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 i think they irony, I'd say. yeah they both have okay. a little bit of irony and a little awareness at least i don't think it's a horrible movie um, yeah mm. it sounds uh, a bit anachronistic and uh, like sort of what it talks about like it's right. like it's maybe not the not the questions or not the way these questions are talked about really anymore it sounds a bit like you know like machos and like this sort of <laughs> old, really, sort of this kind of like type of like virility idea of virility yeah. or whatever i think it maybe handles most it handles curves. that better better than you might expect but i think he already made that definitive document in um Unforgiven. I think that is like the defi- definitive document of what virility looks like in the West and how it goes to die and what it means to really be macho in that setting. So making a, a semi-neo-Western that doesn't really hit on all fronts for me. Uh, I don't know. I, I wanted him to avoid the West. I thought um, Unforgiven should have been a final statement. Right. Okay. But, you know, he still has things to say. I'll never get in the way. I'll always show up to an Eastwood movie. Even the 1510 to Paris people have found redemption for. Like they, uh, People genuinely love when it splits into like that action segment, and they think that's genuinely good shooting. So uh, People will find anything in an Eastwood movie, and I think he's still doing something. Mm-hmm. Right. I'll, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll watch it eventually. Yeah. yeah. Um, do we want to move to something that's, I think, more or less the same like in the Eastwood school, I think, yeah, um, definitely the same. Like, I think he could have made this, uh, which is. Yeah. Uh, I think he's probably influenced by it at the very least. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's Kido Senshi Gundamu. <laughs> this is a mobile suit Gundam. Uh, I don't know if you guys heard of, about that. It's like a little, little like Japanese uh, series. 
that I discovered. Um, Where did you find it? Takes it? Oh, just you know, just on uh, on my hard drive. I don't know where the, where it came from. <laughs> it's just an old hard drive. Um, uh, and uh, it it takes place in space, <laughs> and it involves big robots that fight each other. Um, and yet, I well, I should say, uh, I watched the first movie out of three, which is a summary and. Um, uh, like a, a uh, you know, like a, a summary, which also cuts parts and like streamlines them, uh, of a show, which was the first Gundam show uh, from I think 79, 78 or 79. Uh, this film is from 81, if I'm not mistaken. And um, sort of boils that down and uh, in, into three movies that are about like a little bit over two hours each. And uh, sort of also touches up some of the animation and stuff like that. And it's very divisive whether it, this is, it's better than the series because of because it trims all the fat or anything. And then others say, no, it cuts out essential scenes and essential details or whatever. You I've know, just been through that circus with Ava. Uh, a very, very tough circus for me. Uh, the most brutal yeah. critics in the online are the Ava fans. <laughs> right. And uh, it's interesting because the, like uh, Evangelion takes so much stuff from this like on i know it's all hideaki i know it's always said it was always transparent about it um basically uh the film begins we have the, we said we get this sort of political we have this political conflict of like the earth federation which is this giant sort of conglomerate of uh, you know government that sort of has colonized space and then we have um God, no, no, I'm, I'm gonna mess up the names. Is it the Zeons? I think the Zeons. Yeah, I think so. Is it the Zeons? Um, yeah, the Zeons, right? Uh, the Principality of Zeon, um, or the Duchy of Zeon, which is like in the far space, uh, uh, like a small, uh, pretty, um, um, what do you call it? Dictatorially governed um, little little republic there that is separatist and sort of wants and it's fighting the big. Like Federation, and um, they infiltrate one of the stations, uh, like one of their uh, sort of uh, living, like like how do you call it, like big space stations where there's life, you know, where there's uh, where people are living, and uh, manage to you know start an attack on that, and that's how it really start the crisis starts because they kill an entire sort of army there, like entire set of like soldiers, and so um, this leads to a generation of kids having to quickly take their place and become the new um, the new set of, of soldiers, the new set of pilots for these Gundams, for the robots. Uh, Gun and the Gundam is like the big um, new robot that the Federation has. And mm. that is much more like it's very strong. And these, the, these early battles um, are all about supporting this one kid, Amuro, who can pilot this. Gundam, he finds like like he he's like a computer nerd, and um, <clears throat> he in the in the in the heat of the battle, like he's he just gets into it and then uh, uh, wards off the attack, and from then on, like he becomes the pilot for that thing, and it's really just about supporting this big robot, right? Like the others are their their job is like to support the big robot, mm -hmm. which can do the most damage, and um, uh, obviously the Zeons led by one of the generals, Char who's a great character, a 
revolver ocelot type i would call him like, <laughs> yeah he is <laughs> intriguing immediately intriguing um and so like right off the bat from this first movie like you you, you i found it so i found it fantastic the animation is fantastic uh, it really is a visceral depiction of war supported by a great sort of sound work sound designs sound effects and just great sort of shots of like you know just the the, ho the horrible uh, side of of the war uh, you get the trauma uh, as aspect uh, like about these kids like being pitted into the the conflict and war and uh, in general and uh, that, that's really something that inspired evangelion of course and then you get the political intrigue where it's not like the zeons you know which are sort of <laughs> like almost a, a bit nazi like in there yeah. how they how they are uh depicted like you always you get the difference between like government right and the people and you get that on both sides so even so also the the this earth federation uh, the level of of governance the level of um the the people in charge which we also never really see yet not yet we haven't really seen mm -hmm. that uh, obviously we'll see them later they're not at all like you know they're 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 just as power hungry they're just as like and and it's not it, it's like it it makes up this sort of it opens up it opens up this conflict and then it introduces all these parties in it i mean it's two big parties but then you know you got layers of like political layers of like you know you got the government you got like the military you got just um civilians you know you got these kids that are new and like and uh you got people who are like it's like chad who's like seemingly double crossing or is he like um and so there's great intrigue there set up in this first um movie and i was all all about it uh it's not just flashy action or anything anything like it's the opposite of that it's not supposed to i mean it is really the, the animation is fantastic but ultimately it doesn't serve like a the purpose of like pure just hollow like eye candy or anything like that um what i should say is that when i got into gundam it was as a consequence of gundam being presented as like a toy line eventually it became like how do we sell war to children through toys and uh, I guess the story with Mobile Suit Gundam to look at is that um, original syndication run. I love like this 70s, 80s style of anime and how bright and bold the the palettes are and how big the uh, the designs of like the the um, Gundams are. I feel like there's so much boldness in that aesthetic, but especially it was uh, canceled uh, and taken off the air pretty early on. And uh, really, it ran in syndication. And once they figured out how to sell them as toys, like Gundam came mm -hmm. back and became like a huge international phenomenon, but um, initially not very successful. So um, uh, putting these three movies, I believe, in into like theaters early on to kind of revive this and and kind of like spike, uh, you know, um, um, some energy back into the heart of Gundam. I think uh, I think it works, and it never reads to me like a series of uh, animated uh, episodes put into a film. I think it reads coherently as its own. Uh, um, overarching story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I am. I can't wait to continue. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. I mean, the, I, I haven't seen. I, I, I've seen some of Evangelion, and I've seen the Macross film. Macross, do you remember Love? Which is obviously later. Like Macross was inspired by mm -hmm. Gundam, um, and that's also a great movie. <laughs> personally, I thought like that's uh, much more like um, space op uh, soap opera, which a lot of these are. I think Gundam also becomes that. In, like some iterations of Gundam become that more than others, but uh, 
I, I'm there for that. And uh, the Macross film is also really, really, really good. Um, just insane animation in that one as well. Yeah, insane. I was I was like, huge yeah. into like Robotech, Macross, all, all, all that like pairing and yeah, and later Gundam. I mean, uh, I think you'd like. Um, I think it's the 08 MS team. I think is the the later Gundam that I was really into uh, because that one really gets into like the nitty gritty parts of like the Gundam and like uh, yeah, it's like the operation and and how these work as like functional mechas and. Uh, that one I'm pretty fond of, but uh, yeah, there's Gundam Endless Waltz. I watched a lot. I think it was my first DVD, so uh, I really <laughs> out overplayed that. Yeah, that's 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 fun that you have a history of that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I feel like I should have a history of that, and I don't like it for as much as I seem to be enjoying these. Yeah, and I, uh, I, like I need to expand that history. Uh, like I need to make my own history here with that stuff because so far well, hey. it's yeah. I'm gonna continue watching them with you if you if you continue these I'll I'll finish the next two with you. So. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely watching. I'm watching the next one this coming weekend. The second one. Okay, maybe not that uh, soon. Maybe uh maybe I shouldn't have. Uh, no, yeah, yeah. No, I, I have a commitment to. I have commitment to another friend who I'm watching okay. them with who watched the TV show. I'll watch them uh, with you again. Yeah. I'll do it. I'll do it like I did this time, just coloring with Ezra and uh yeah a uh, little sure, background, sure. but but, but pretty engaged. Now. I got pretty into it. Uh, we both watched the Japanese original vocal track. I hear the English one. Not very good. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, with such a long-running series, you know, like these characters, like you want the original. There's a reason they're they're like, you know, cult because like the have a cult status, you know, that you really need to hear Char's Char in the original <laughs> in the original dub. Like such a great character. <laughs> like immediately with a mask and everything. And then yeah, what is he up to? You know, who knows? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> set up so many things, but yeah. very economically. Like he sees a girl on the Earth planet there and calls her by a different name than like the blonde lady, right? That's also later than on the ship. And so it's like, is she is she family? Is she like are they related? What's going on here? Yeah. Um, or that that uh, gala, you know, the one where the his friend that he double crosses, like he has that romance with the one lady, the daughter of this rich guy who disapproves of the Zion government. And, and so he, you know, doesn't let them get together. And that's like a thing, like, I don't know if she will play how much of a role she will continue to play that, that, that daughter, mm. but they really sort of give that enough time for like to, to sort of give him a human element because he wants to leave. Like if we don't let him come together, like he wants to leave the, the family, the clan and like run off with her. So it's not like he's depicted in this cartoonish, like as a, like this cartoonish villain, this cartoonish villain or anything. He's you know the youngest son of this, of this like family of this yeah. uh, uh, of autocrats, and um, yeah, it's 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 really well done. Um, the parents of the <laughs> did you notice by the way that the father of the of Amuro <laughs> at the start just flies through like he he basically gets blown into space like he yeah. he they on a car right and then you forget about him and then this battle happens and then uh he, he amuro blows up a ro one of the robots and that blasts a hole into the protective uh thing of the of the sta station and the car with the dad in it and you don't even Those get another shot space. of him like yeah. it just it just gets sucked through uh, so it's also like but like is it the dead, I guess, is, is gone, is dead. Yeah. 
uh, and then you meet his mother on the on the earth and earth and she disapproves of his new life and so it's very 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 well done i thought uh, yeah we both approve and uh we'll be back to it together i think uh maybe i will watch it this coming week so yeah uh how long until i can buy a giant robot by the way do you know uh, uh, when that will be possible hmm. i know there's a gif also of a gundam uh, facing a mecha hello kitty uh, uh, and I want, I want to see that. I want to see that season <laughs> as well. I've gone. <laughs> I'm all in. Are you sure? I'm all in. Be careful yeah, I mean, what you ask shirt, for. Anime. Oh yeah, you yeah, are wearing, wearing the shirt. Uh, yeah. Anime wearing, is a mistake. Is that is that the shirt? Anime was a mistake. Yes, it's a it's an outline of Miyazaki. You know, uh, you know the meme. yes. And like, but it's very tastefully done. It was a Yeti shirt, and it got Japanese, and below it it says "anime was a mistake," just like in the fake subtitle on the meme. Is that that's the one where? Oh, it is a fake subtitle. It's not what he's actually saying yeah, while yeah. he's working on it. I was hoping that he was really that dejected. No, but... no, because <laughs> he seems that dejected in that documentary, from what I remember of it. But it's some it's something no, he could have said at that point, but sure. Sure. An anime was a mistake. It's it is true. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's a very good meme because it seems so. So, so um, yeah, like it could part. It could be. It could be what he says. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think anime wasn't a mistake. I think anime was necessary a necessary step <sighs> and a necessary part of our lives. To be honest. Uh, speaking of, speaking uh, of anime being a mistake, Norm Macdonald died. Oh, it's the biggest mistake anyone has made. Yeah, life has made. It is yeah, a pretty cruel was... mistake. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and a mistake. The... Apparently, nine years in the making, right? And yeah, didn't know about it. He lived with cancer for nine years. Um, surfaced are a lot of things, uh, but especially his uh, his little quip about cancer and. <laughs> And if you lose a fight to cancer, uh, it's, it's a draw or whatever he said. Uh, that's been surfaced often the last week. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Very emotional for me because he is uh, by far my favorite comedian. And I spent a lot of years just like studying comedians, like probably too seriously in a way that wasn't enjoyable anymore. But uh, just very interested in that form and, and how people structure mm -hmm. jokes and what it's about. But uh, maybe my biggest influence in that world is Norm Macdonald and uh, among like the Richard Pryors and George Carlins and the others that everyone always notes. Uh, yeah. Norm was my favorite. Yeah. For me as well. I mean, was, I think I can clearly say he is my favorite. He was my favorite uh, because he really was, he managed to do, he managed to work with everything. Like he really highlighted the form of it all because he could work with any material. And he, I think he challenged himself so often with like the most mundane <laughs> like material or even like unfunny but like material that is like unfunny and he try he made it funny just through the form like through the delivery through the timing pauses uh like how he changed it sort of deconstructed it reworked it like and also effortlessly at the same time like, it was like it always was so relaxed like and almost like in this like he's slurring, like he's like almost like a little bit, you know, out of yeah. it or anything. But always, you know, so smart what he did. Um, he has that fundamental Quebecois niceness, which is uh, 
very rare in comedians that do such edgy material. Usually you're expecting Andrew Dice Clay, like, oh, she's a fucking pig, right? Like, uh, no, like Norm was like on the other side of that where uh, he could be uh, telling jokes for uh, every night of SNL about how OJ is murdering someone. And, and it'll still look at the audience in a reassuring way that you know that it's safe. Uh, when he made, um, he was good at uh, roasting people and uh, putting people at the spot. Um, I guess we should look at like the multiple phases of Norm because there are yes. many different kinds of norms and he shows up in different ways and different capacities. And uh, not the problem, I guess, uh, I guess the real tragedy is we never got the norm that I, I ever wanted. And I think we'll get to that. Um, uh, wow. what, what I wanted from Norm may not have been what Norm wanted or what Norm could have done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um yeah you're absolutely right like i think we need to talk about how sort of uh multifaceted his career was and how it was like and how that was i think something that he absolutely strived for like to both you could both like talk about different sort of aspects and kinds of comedy that he attempted and tried and like the different formats he tried them in uh, that is i think just as important um and in a in, in a way personally i think I mean, obviously, he's a born stand-up comedian, but also, um, I think he toward the la latter part of the career, he I thought was really found a form that suited him extremely well, which was just a talk for format, and um, the you know through the talk shows that he had, but also through the podcast, like he was, yeah. I think, um, and and that then is found like finds its way back in another format, which is YouTube clips, which is how you can find so much norm on YouTube. You and can. it's like, a lot of it is like, for example, clips of podcasts. And because I think, you know, comedy, I think has found like a big new home in podcasts generally, like, like you know, a lot of comedians do podcasts. Is and that what we're supposed to be doing it, here? Is that, is this supposed to be funny? <laughs> no, we we're not. No. We, you, know, you can only talk about comedy in a... <laughs> absolutely unfunny way that's there's no other way unfortunately uh, but um, <laughs> um yeah like like the the podcast podcast appearances under the podcast and also just i would include in his work in a way people talking about him yeah because yeah stories about norms and mcdonald's private life i don't want to be act like i'm on a first name basis with him uh, stories about norm mcdonald's like private life how it was anecdotes about him like are just as funny as if there were a, a norm joke, a norm bit or something. Um, I almost consider that as part of the work. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think like part of his work, especially is showing up for other people. Like you look at him starting as a writer on Roseanne and then of course him going to uh, SNL, not like as a main like actor in like bit parts, although he did a lot of really great parts. Like his main yeah. function was at the news desk. Like um, I think of him on David Letterman, uh, Letterman's favorite guest, and and on Conan as Conan's favorite guest. Um, and I guess first my first appearance on Conan was yeah. a replacement. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> so I guess yeah, I guess canceled, and then Norm got his, uh, you know, Norm did his stand up about buying a dog. Great appearance, <laughs> first first appearance. Uh, yeah, he was very nervous. You can tell. 
he knocked them all out and i thought conan responded to him very well in a way that was uh comedically satisfying for me i thought conan was able to keep up with him but there was also like the norm at like award shows like the espies like uh really like laying into all the athletes there in a way that wasn't done at that time but then there's like norm at like the bob saget roast and norm at all these roasts and doing um other people's programs i think he's like a a great secondary man and he's he's like so concerned with like the convention and form of of media but also exposing any hypocrisy that might be in the media in a really brilliant way uh in a cutting was it ironic YouTube, way uh, awards show <laughs> was it YouTube awards show was that and was like his entire time you know was like you know basically the equivalent of who question mark like just yeah. exposing how like no one's heard of these people no one knows who these people are yeah um but he, ne he never did it in a way where it was like, like he always did it with you know a smile like you never be <laughs> like it's very high art to do that without being like immediately seeming like a villain like someone an antagonist um, yeah right he, yeah he did it always he with this, this grin he only became the antagonist that one time with SNL because uh, the guy was like OJ's golfing buddy, whoever was leading it back then, yeah. not Lauren Michaels, but uh, the guy before him uh, who was interim. Uh, in I think it was SNL. a higher up at the, at oh, was the channel. At the, I think it was a higher up, uh, like a suit at the TV. I don't know. What channel was it on? I, I don't really know. Uh, NBC uh, probably. NBC? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was like an NBC suit. Okay, not, uh, yeah. Not, not I thought there was like an interim person in there, and they they got. I think you're right. It was a suit at, at uh, NBC that that yeah. got that rubbed yeah. him the wrong way. And um, <laughs> well, uh, I I mean, uh, it, I, he did get up there every week and say that OJ was a murderer. I mean, he really he really did try to push his, their buttons, and he knew that he'd lose his job over that. It wasn't like a surprise that was happening. He never. I think because he, the he was gonna lose his job over that. Um, like that's. Extra, that was extra motivation to to do it. Like, <laughs> yeah. like that was. I think it was always a fearlessness uh, that sort of characterized, you know, stuff like trying trying to change and like trying to like sort of uh, constantly evolve, but yeah. and also like fear, fearless in that um, to try stuff out. Uh, well, for we... example, this roast there is yeah. an example of that. Absolutely. I mean, there's that integrity in comedy. And really caring about his uh, position and how he's doing it in this platform. Um, I don't. I don't mm -hmm. think uh, very many people took as seriously as Norm Macdonald did. Uh, very, very yeah. good at using his position, his platform to do something. Uh, I guess what I always wanted was, um, for a long time, it was like said that Letterman wanted Norm to take over for him, and that was always my goal and my like aspiration for him. And I guess that he probably, in that time, he was probably never healthy enough to actually make that a reality. Um, he, I mean, that, yeah. that seemed like the only logical move from Letterman. I mean, Norm came out on his last appearance and uh, gave a very tearful speech to uh, Dave Letterman. And I thought that was very nice. But I thought the next obvious continuation was, okay, Norm gets the show. And then it didn't happen. And And I've wondered. I've wondered for like several years if there was some illness or or why Norm could only do like these secluded Netflix spots or Norm McDonald Live. Like I've wondered what mm -hmm. prevented that. Um, man, I, I just think such a missed opportunity. We didn't get him like every night of the week. I'm still happy we got, you know, we did his talk show like with like, oh, Norm McDonald has a show. Norm McDonald yeah. has a the, the, the Norm McDonald Netflix, Live. The, yeah. 
Norbert live and then Norbert has a show on Netflix the one season. I thought, like like I said, I think he almost, that was almost like enough like, for him. He found his form there. Like I almost thought like he really, this is sort of the, the almost the best form of Norm we could get because <laughs> I really thought um, like, especially if you watch also that Netflix show, it's amazing how you can dial back himself as a, as a person and just talk very like candidly and nicely with the with his guests whom he generally like enjoyed like he you know were people that he enjoyed that he liked yeah um and such great like it almost like i don't know it's hard to explain but like almost like he mature like his comedy was like at the highest point of maturity there for me almost like very subtle the very subtle style where it's almost like not even not even like recognizable comedy anymore but still extremely funny um i thought it was so good i mean and he also had that you know the flashcards with like these written jokes as well <laughs> and they make Those everyone like read the the worst jokes the crass, yeah 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 that was like the crass uh the crass um uh, opposite of that subtle and tender <laughs> uh style which is also you know great sort of uh, opposition there but um, but i agree that it like the especially norm mcdonald live i think just played so well into his strengths in comedy but it was yeah it was really like Norm listening and showing that he was uh, tender and and responsive and gave space for his friends, and uh, I don't know that's a that's a good format. Like I think that's everything you could yeah. want to do with the podcast. So. Um, and you know we can contrast that with like his appearances with I, which I also think is part of the like main oeuvre is yeah. appearances on on uh, on top on shows on late night shows and stuff where you know he his previous style was very much, you know, telling jokes as like personal stories, like sort of <laughs> wrapping them in like personal stories like about some uncle of his or something that happened to him, like with his neighbor with, when he was on vacation or whatever. And they're all bullshit. Like, <laughs> yeah. Obviously extremely constructed, like long jokes and was all in the delivery. It was all in the digressions and like in the part, like in the, in a way that he told them were that also include like, trying to find one's words or like making something up, but like also saying something and taking it back with a smile, like, like saying like yeah. saying something just for the sound of it being said and then saying, no, no, no. like pausing real quick and saying, no, no, no. I'm just, and then continuing. And uh, this is off the cuff experimentation, which I mean, it, it obviously is again, never like it takes all the comedy out of comedy to break it down like that, but uh, we have to do it. Um, in this case, uh, like, I don't know if episode. it does, like in this case, right? Like, I think he, I think he is very brainy comedy, and I mean, I don't think deconstructing a Norm Macdonald joke would like take away the joke. If anything, it, it no, might no. be like a form of comedy where it excels uh, for its structure, and that it is deconstructing like what a what a joke is. It's like taking away the punchline and making the whole journey the joke. I mean, the whole being there with yeah, Norm is really the joke. So, I, I don't know. I think. Hmm. I think you could still shaggy watch. Dog, uh, uh, yeah, is that, is that called? That's I think what yeah. it's called, right? The Shaggy Dog story. That's I think he really he had a face there where he really was obsessed with pushing the limits of that <laughs> the Shaggy show. Dog. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the moth joke, which I guess he heard from like Colin Quinn, and then like elaborated. But I think like all the extra stuff that actually makes the moth joke special is all Norm. Like I mean, that's all his it invention, is. like on the spot and. That's I, I was listening to Conan's you know podcast story? and what's that? Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah was, so you heard the story. That yeah. Did you heard the story about how that happened? Yeah. Yeah. I was listening to Conan's podcast. I said, okay, we have like mm-hmm. seven extra minutes and Norm was like, just like <laughs> yes. rambling and uh, just creating this like a uh, universe of the story, like a Chekhovian story where, uh, yeah, this moth just goes in and um, what is he he's try- going to see the doctor and the diarist, he goes into a moth. Yeah. Depression and like, and then you know the entire punchline, which the person that told him the initial story just made it very quick. Like, why did you, you know, come here? I'm a podiatrist. You need a psychologist. And the moth says, yeah, uh, like, because okay, like, why did you come to me? I'm a, I'm a podiatrist. And the moth says, because the light was on. And it's very like, <laughs> nothing joke. It's good because but, like, it's nothing it already, up, right? Like, uh... yeah. Uh, but then expanding it by six minutes and like filtering it through one of those bullshit Norm McDonald stories, like, oh yeah, I was on a I was on a cab on the way over here, and uh, the cab driver told me a little story, and then you know, like him like filtering that bullshit experience through the Shaggy Dog story is really what sells that joke. Yeah, really perfect. Norm and also material. the context, I think, I think he, you know, that was that 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 like such like a TV show, a late night show. That is so tightly <laughs> timed and scripted. Yeah. Also, like, <laughs> like I think that I'm not saying that's the only place where he could have told it, but I think like there's a great awareness there of like media formats where this is where that joke gets enhanced because <laughs> after the joke is over, the segment is basically almost over. Yeah, like, you're so used that, to people. Like, more minutes. <laughs> you're yeah. so used to people wasting your time and being like on a regimented schedule with these late night shows that Norm just yeah. coming in interrupting that whole structure of a talk show. Um, I, I think about his a uh, youthful poipus uh, a joke too. That one's good. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What else? Uh, the turtle joke. Uh, he has a lot of these yes. shaggy dog ones on Conan. A lot of them. Yeah, a lot of them, uh, especially yeah, especially on Conan. I mean, about his you know the neighbor and uh, vacation with a guy playing Scrabble with with an old guy, uh, which is a great <laughs> story as well. Conan's um, just and- like a lack of expression, and then just a like slight annoyance, but realization that it's genius at the end. I think is what sells the stories and makes some good platforms on Conan. Yeah, and he yeah. lets him talk. He lets him. Yeah. Lets him. You know, he's a good. He gives him some cues, but also like basically. Let's him just Let's him go. do his thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and <laughs> but you never feel you feel like he. It's amazing. Like he has this prepared, but like obviously, but then it never. It feels like you stumble. Depending, like he comes in, and then it's like a random chance that you get like any like it's like a wheel going. <laughs> like, oh, he's gonna tell this story. Like almost like he doesn't pick it beforehand, and then depending on how. The conversation goes like he tell he will tell that one that one that one, but obviously it's prepared. But it feels so like casual and like again like like almost like he he doesn't have his wits about him or anything. He just <laughs> yeah, know. it's just a, uh, a a guy like talking on the couch, just like interrupting the whole uh, formal mm-hmm. exercise of having a talk show. I mean, it's just that's part of the brilliance, yeah. like you say. It's like a, knowing the format and willingness to interrupt and disrupt the media. I think is very crucial. The norm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even like a, he doesn't do what you want him to do. Also, like uh, Norm on mm-hmm. Twitter is just like a fucking like tweeting golf tweets for the last ten years. <laughs> he didn't tell anyone he had cancer, but he told everyone every score for every uh, hit of golf in the PGA of the last nine years. So and that's Norm. And like the, the yeah. he lost like the <laughs> and stuff. And like uh, we should say he had a sports show. We could you should see like as in the sort of the continuation of like the weekend update Norm. 
like yeah. this doing this panel like newsy funny news show and stuff personally not a favorite uh, no, for, me for me um but uh, you know it's all a puzzle piece of a puzzle there and one of the pieces is also this film that we can uh, we should talk about which is dirty work um, we, we we were going to talk about dirty work but i think like the actual story of norm is so much bigger than dirty work and bigger than <laughs> than oh, that yeah, contribution yeah, yeah. to comedy uh, which is very small quick, uh, quick word uh i guess about it i mean it's not a great film by any means it's a bad i would say it's a bad really bad comedy but like it's a vehicle for just norm like he doesn't he's just norm in there he doesn't even like yeah. play a character and some of the jokes are like a lot of the jokes personally i found to be <laughs> almost like not funny of like some of them offensive yeah um there's also some that land that some some are good but it's it's more this i think what it always was which is like friends in comedy just doing something here and they happen to get a budget for it because <laughs> you know they're they have the names it's like bob Sagan and stuff and they happen to get a budget for it even though you know some stuff is like almost on a technical level like you hear some one time a guy on the phone and it sounds like he's standing next to the character instead of like you didn't put a proper effect on it that it sounds like the guy's on the, on the phone. <laughs> they don't. Like but it's yeah. also like one of those uh, comedies where you could get a large budget because all you have to say is like, okay, I have Bob Saget directing like Norm Macdonald, Artie Lang, and um, who else is it? Don Rickles, Chris Farley. Um, you could have like uh, Chevy Chase shows up and um, yeah. David Kochner. Okay. I mean. Holy shit, Gary Coleman! I mean, you just keep you keep going with those. It's like, yeah, that's how you get funding. Uh, it does, and then nothing happens. Like it's a it's a real nothing movie. I, I think it's closer to like yeah. Artie Lang comedy than an actual norm. Uh, right, material. it's not really exactly. It's not really a norm. Um, not really norm comedy at all. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, Rickles, I think has the, like the, the best ca- uh, appearance in that film. Like he does show well, yeah. He also, they also just let him, you know, play Rickles. Like he just insults these these people, and it, and it's really good. Uh, I mean, Rickles can also, you know, he, he's all he was in Casino and stuff like that. He's not, you know, he's not a he's, he's professional. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, Norm also, you know, he had so many things. That's why, like, he was so he had a short, you know, he had a show show like in the Norm show for a while, yeah. like as well, and so much stuff. But I think we we both agree, right, that ultimately. What made him was like the stuff where he could fully be, where we had like no script. Uh, ultimately, where no 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 script, like where he could just do his own material on the shows, on podcasts, on his own talk show. Then where he basically just could add like the the runtime, like the the format and the runtime where he could just just flow. Well, just uh, I I think it was important that Norm wasn't answering to people. I think like. You look at like Norm McDonald Live and like even like the 9-11 joke on that, just like how horrendous he could be with a smile. Um, uh, even if you're smiling, cable executives don't want that on their program. So it had to be somewhere like YouTube or Netflix ultimately. And I think we got what we needed there. Uh, I just wish, I still wish it could be like, it's that thing about the talk show and going against the format. I want Norm to show up on the middle of cable at the middle of night in David Letterman's spot and just totally disrupt that. Like, fine, that's on YouTube. Like, Norm, we're getting the perfect expression of Norm on YouTube, but I don't think it's disrupting YouTube because it's fair game there. Um, that's, you know, that's fine. It's not sanctioned by anything. Uh, there's nobody to answer to except Norm, which might be the purest form, but uh, it's not breaking boundaries anymore. So there's also that. Right. 
Uh, we should talk about like the politics because uh, a little bit yeah. because um, there were definitely there were instances outside of the comedy where um, you know he had some friendships with people who you know had like uh, were accused of like various things. Let's yeah. say uh, you know canceled well, in various forms. Norm, you know, Norm, I'd say is very loyal to his friends, like in comedy too. Yes. Yeah, to yeah. A, to a huge fault eventually. And, you know, he may have been even, like, I don't think he was, like, a, like, he, he just avoided the topic. He, I don't think he was, like, a hardcore, like, conservative or anything in that yeah. sense. I think he was, like, more or less, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, but more like, you know, this sort of a bit, you know, it's a little bit maybe naive, but, like, more like, not really... Um, he wasn't forthcoming, I, I, I don't think. With la <laughs> not this labeled, not the labeled position, but more like mm -hmm. this DIY, like personal beliefs and so on. But yeah, like you said, I think most of all, he just cared about the comedy and, and friends, like you say. Um, but, um, you know, that he, he also made jokes about a lot of minorities and stuff like that in the in the Norm MacDonald show. But it was always clear that that was like a, not a, no, not him doing jokes about minorities, about the people, the minority, but him playing with the format of jokes about, about minorities. Them. Yeah, playing, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's, you know, playing with the form always. And uh, um, um, it's a very fine line. I think that's a very high art to be able to pull that off, like, and not be like, just, you know, not, not be the things that, not, not be discriminatory with those jokes, but like to expose them as those jokes while still being funny and still capitalizing it's it's a very you know it's a very fine line it's extremely yeah. complicated to do to pull that stuff off and he's and, very able to walk that that line just based on his personality and maybe his canadian niceness get, gets him a long ways there um i think it's just norm i don't want to like uh to say that all canadians are this nice i think it's just norm being uh yeah. seem like genuinely a good person with good intentions in his comedy yeah, and he really, you know, he really, I think comedy was, I don't think he, you know, he still, when he was famous and stuff, you know, he was still doing so much stand-up, so much, like, he just lived for that, um, like, com like old school, you know, comedy and just talk, like, he, you know, he just, <laughs> he, he was never a star, like, he could have been, and he was, I guess, for a minute there, a star, but mm -hmm. then he just became like he quickly just revert back to like just being normal. Like when you see him on certain appearance, like or like on the podcast now, he's just there in casual outfit, uh, like in with you know hoodie, like cap, and like just just talking to these people. It's in, in, it's very like also a lot of inside baseball, a lot of like yeah, pri like talking about the business in a that's not totally that's what I like. It, way, it it feels like you're really getting in on something. Like uh, you always wonder. I, there's something about like comedians and their shows together where it feels so stagey like even like uh comedians in cars getting coffee it's like god damn like this feels so uncomfortable from the outside like i really want to like sit in with them in their apartment and listen to them like bullshit while eating kentucky fried chicken instead uh that sounds a little better to me i think that's what norm allowed the, his appearance has you seen uh, his appearance on the that show on which show where he tells them, uh Comedians in cars getting coffee. Oh yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, <laughs> he, talks, he talks about the Kojak. He, he like recounts a and moment in Kojak, and it's very like it's very good how he like tells. It just tells a scene from Kojak. He just you know re 
enacts it and it's and it's very good uh so many i mean we're not gonna we, we can't start naming like moments or clips because it will get too much to be yeah too much, but there's the um the one in that episode where he talks about cosby um <laughs> and he's yeah, saying yeah, yeah. uh yeah, uh, the uncomfortable thing about Cosby isn't that he was uh, like accused of anything, and uh, and Jerry's like, "What do you mean? What do you mean? It's not that he was accused. That's the worst part." He's like, "Well, I think it's the raping." <laughs> I was like, oh goddamn! <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's you walked right into that. Like, you know, he also Jerry walked right into that then as well. Yeah, but yeah, that's uh, like that's even too formal. I think like that's another structure. Like that's a that's a very limited structure of what a comedian can do. They get in the car, they get coffee, they go home. Like Norm's show is just mm -hmm. like let's live with it and and uh, show how we actually talk as comedians and and what that's like to be like inside like a writer's room. Yeah, I think that's really good. I uh, you've also read his book, right? Yeah, uh, which is just another very, very long Shaggy Dog story. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, none of it's true. It's it's another one of those he's making bullshit up about what happened to him. Uh, it's, yeah. it's based on uh, yeah. a true story, but he wrote it about himself. So. Not a memoir. No. <laughs> Not a memoir, right? Yeah, yeah I think uh, so. Yeah, I, I ordered it when you know the news came in, and uh, unfortunately it... I think it has to come from the U.S. or something. Uh, not at stock here, so I'm only getting it beginning of October. Um, so I couldn't get in time. But uh, look, look, it's not an amazing yeah. book, but uh, it's a, it's a very oh. very long joke, really. I, I'm interested in all these again, like these. This is again. I would say he's a multimedia, uh, com like an, a a com comedic artist that you know really was interested in multimedia and sort of trying out these different formats. Uh, it's and, a uh, yeah. Wouldn't you say it's atypical for like a show like what we do when we're usually like, okay, we're going down to MDIB and we're going to see like what's like a, a person's real contribution to cinema and uh, did they land in enough classic Hollywood movies for David to care about them? Uh, but for Norm, it's <laughs> like um, his, his best role might be like, you know, it might not matter. It might not matter like what movies he was in. We can't like equate him to like a um, an it's aggregate yeah. yeah it's not like an aggregate score on mdiv is going to mean something for dirty work it's like a uh, norm is so it many arguably doesn't mean anything for movies either for any yeah. movies. but um yeah. i mean you know there's uh the the feeling that like we look down a list of a person's combined work and we're like oh we could determine this about them but uh norm is so many other things outside that uh movie work that uh that, that's a very small oh, yeah. small oh, part yeah. Exactly, it's a it's a part of like very equivalent pieces, and some work better for for us than others. But they're all part of sort of this yeah experimental I would say experimental comedian, and um, <laughs> there's no one thing to point to. Like there's no it's a it's a it's whole body of work. Yeah, it's a body of work that is sort of you know it's very multifaceted. And there's no like one main work and like then some side works or whatever uh, that you could point to. Um, uh, <laughs> So, so I think that's a testament, sort of, to his um, the, the complexity, ultimately, of what what he did, um, and uh, really, the, the, uh, yeah. He, I mean, he will be he will be missed. I was still very much, very much hoping for another season, just another season yeah. of what he did on it. Uh, it was a, it was a fantastic show. I really loved it. I mean, and. and Norm done live before that, so he's still he was I think at the pinnacle in many ways uh, of what he was doing in a new form, uh, obviously. But um, 
yes, it was very sad. He he will be he will be missed. Obviously, way too young as well. Um, um, but I'm glad we we came together to to celebrate uh, our favorite uh, here. It's great that we have a shared favorite here, and that David um, decided to uh, take a week off for, uh, and then held it against us for a moment, but then uh, also took the week off anyway. So uh, thank you, David, for doing that. Um, yeah, thanks, David. I think that was for 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 that was a bit where he yeah. was holding it against us. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that I think it's. Um, a thing where Norm will become more appreciated and where he's at a perfect point where it is this whole body of work, but most of it is available on YouTube in a way that people are going to really connect with it, like in a modern way. Like we say, there's so many uh, outtakes of uh, old shows mm -hmm. and um, really nothing like specific from movies or like uh, fictionalized work that you're really looking for. It's you're really looking for like Norm, the, um, the way he shows up for other people and, the way he showed up in his online shows, I think, are what we can direct people to. Yeah, yeah. I'd start Just with Norm McDonald live. But... And yeah, either that or the other late night appearances, I think, are. Yeah. Late night appearances might even be more accessible, I think, uh, as a yeah. start, you know. Just to get these, these his, yeah, his, his funny stories, his, his great comedy there. Um, right. Uh, thanks uh, for having me on here. And uh, I guess... That's uh, you know I'm happy to come back whenever we need to talk about giant robots or our favorite comedians uh, um, passing away. Hopefully, not more of them. Hopefully, time. we can do both. Uh, hopefully, I mean not like <laughs> not, not the comedians. <laughs> yeah, not the not the dead comedians. But, yeah, um, yeah. Hopefully, more Gundams at some point. Uh, and so I don't. I'm sure, you will return. The thing is that I don't have uh, the. Um, mm -hmm. The outro written down. Uh, uh, David will be back with us next week for uh, The Night of the Living oh. Dead, by the way. So uh, I have to plug that. Um, but I don't have the outro. Yeah. Uh, should I just play him reading it from a, a previous episode <laughs> into my microphone? Is that a. I was hoping you would do it, David, but okay. Sure. Should I do it, David? You should do it, David, if, you, if you're feeling up to it. I feel like you need to close your, your nostrils a little bit with your finger there. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Twin Geek Cast. Um, thanks for joining us, Pavlos. Uh, you can find our sister show, um, the Daydream Cast, anywhere that podcasts are played. Also, Ranking the Monsters. I didn't write that down. I uh, forgot to write it down this week. Uh, and all that and more on your home for classic and contemporary cinema. Well Bravo. <laughs> Thank you. Very much. Wait, you didn't tell me. You didn't tell me David was in this call. What? <laughs> Whoa! Ha! If you told me three days ago, I'd be standing here with one arm and one testicle, trying to reason with you, bitches. <laughs>